Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. On our November episode of CJSW Writer's Block, we have an in-depth interview with Jacqueline Dawn about her funny and poignant debut novel, The Inquirer, set in a small town somewhere in Alberta. And we also chat with Wendy McGrath about Broke City, the final novel in her Santa Rosa Prairie Gothic Trilogy, both published by New West Press. Our show airs at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. on the third Tuesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can look for the podcasts at cjsw.com. Jacqueline Dawn grew up in a tabloid-free small town in Alberta. With a communications degree and creative writing master's, she works as a freelance writer and instructor. She now lives somewhere between city and country outside Edmonton with her husband and son. The Inquirer is her debut novel. Jacqueline Dawn, thank you for coming in to CJSW Writer's Block today to talk about your new novel, The Inquirer. Thank you for having me. So I spent a lot of my life in small towns, and I thought this was just a wonderful, page-turning, hilarious also poignant uh, snapshot of a little prairie town. Thank you very much. I grew up in a small town, so I'm glad that that part was successful. (laughs) You know your material. Just for the listener, can you give us kind of a a snapshot of, of the story? Sure. The Inquirer is about a small town where somebody has started publishing the small town gossip in an anonymous tabloid, reminiscent of the tabloids you see in Walmart for gossip in Hollywood. Yes, and um, what the listener can't see is that there are just lovely little examples of the front page of the Inquirer throughout the book that make it even more fun. You'll be reading along and then you'll get to see the cover of the latest Gossip. <laughs> yes, the designer did a wonderful job. She created exactly what I described with the bright red masthead and the big fonts and all the wild headlines that you see that are usually of Jennifer Aniston or Brad Pitt or now <laughs> of the small town, a fictional small town here in Alberta. Yeah. So there's a there's a whole lot going on in this book. Um, small town politics, the influence of social media. Uh, bullying, all sorts of things, and also just the story of a family and um, how we belong inside of family and also inside of community, I would say. Give us a little taste of who the characters are and, and what some of their challenges are. Sure. This story is in first person from a character named Amaya Williams, Two years prior, she just up and moved away in the middle of the night, didn't let anybody know, didn't give any reasoning. So when she comes back because there's been an accident on the farm and her parents need her help, she doesn't get the most welcoming, receptive (laughs) return. And the story's about her having to deal with the past that she'd left behind, except in not at her own pace or in a most comfortable way because here this tabloid that has started up while she was away picks up on her story and is making her confront it publicly. 
very publicly and kind of luridly at times. Mm-hmm. The the idea of this this gossip rag um, having everyone in town kind of pretending not to read it, but actually loving to read it, uh, speculating about how it how it's written, um, how it, who's behind it. There's a lot going on there, and I'm curious as a writer how you came up with that idea. Actually, I was that strange person standing in line at Walmart wondering just that. Uh, what do Brad Pitt's parents think of these articles about them? What do, <laughs> does the Queen think about yet another story about their grandkids or their neighbors or their their enemies even? And it's interesting because everybody has a different take when it comes to gossip. Some love it. Some feel really uncomfortable with it. Some spread it. And as you'd mentioned earlier, we live in a world with social media, so this isn't all that far-fetched because you can go onto Facebook and read about your neighbors. And it's interesting to think about how we would feel if it was that next step further in a tabloid. Right. And actually, it's a really clever device because these, whoever the reporters are putting this newspaper together, they don't have to dig very hard for material because actually, and this is true of most of us, we're giving away all sorts of material every day through social media, aren't we? We really are. And you just have to look in a few different places and different perspectives and you can start piecing things together. And the thing with tabloid articles is that it doesn't necessarily give the whole story. It just gives that enough to hook a person. And I do have to give credit where credit is due because writing an article for a tabloid is much harder than it sounds. (laughs) You have to have that hook and that voice, but you also have to be careful because you don't want to get sued. (laughs) This is true. Yeah, I never thought about that. You You can't go so far as to slander people, I guess, right? But you can suggest at it. Uh, What is your experience with newspapers in general? You seem to, you know, from from what I read, you seem to have a pretty good sense of how uh, newspapers work, small town media works, that kind of thing. Actually, I my degree is in communications. I'm not a journalist. And uh, my experience is quite limited. At one point, I created a small town coffee newsletter, but it was really fun and upbeat. Nothing like <laughs> the Enquirer is at all. So I relied a lot on research. Uh, the Inquirer was actually originally written as my dissertation for my master's degree. And so we had started with coming up with our topics, doing a lot of research, and I found out that tabloids were originally formed much how they are for the Inquirer, my book, because there'd be struggling newspapers and then they'd be bought out and these more sensationalized stories would be used to make money and turn the paper around. Yeah, that is, that is another really neat element in this story because there was once upon a time in this town a very kind of noble form of small town newspaper and they just couldn't make a go of it. And, no. and so they went under and then what took uh, that newspaper's place seems to kind of break all their rules, their all their honorable rules, and then be a wild success. 
Yes, all the un, unwritten social rules. No, the original gazette that had existed before the inquiry in the small town, those are the ones that I remember from my small town days. <laughs> so so in the research that you were doing for your dissertation, you came up with the uh, sort of the, the logistics of how strangers, unknown people in a tiny town where everybody knows everybody's business could get away with this magical paper just suddenly arriving on, on I think, Fridays, right? Yes, every second Friday, it appears. Um, I actually had a contact who, it's a really good, she's a really good friend of mine, she's a lawyer, and I would send her messages when I couldn't find what I was looking for. She'd also get a text at 10 o'clock at night as I was trying to get through a chapter, would this work? And she'd always start her answers with, I wouldn't advise this, and this is for fiction, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's for fiction. And I also had a friend who's an accountant that helped me figure out that end of it. And I, my parents' friend, who's a cop, got a few emails too, just wondering how what would happen if someone got caught doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a lot of fun. It was quite interesting. And I'm glad there is a book out so that they all know, no, I'm not up to anything crazy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not truly crazy or nefarious. I'm just a writer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so uh, it also really made me think about kind of the invisible people in our world because... Um, the newspaper is delivered by the UPS guy, you know, who we all see these people moving through our world all the time and they, and they have a lot of access to our lives and yet we don't really pay attention. It's another thing like social media, it's, it's there all the time and yet we're not really paying attention to it. It is amazing what we take for granted or don't notice and that's what a lot of the characters realize with this paper is they might have found it funny or interesting and then all of a sudden they see an article about themselves and maybe it's not so funny or maybe they enjoy the attention. And it's the same thing as people are digging, they're wondering, is it the grocery store owner? And they look at him a little differently and is it like who is delivering it? Like you say, the UPS driver and is that person involved? It also speaks to the domino effect in smaller communities, I th I thought, because just as you illustrated, as soon as so there's one little catalyst of change, perception changes, and then we start to all look at each other differently. thought that was really uh, well done, too. You know, I thought I knew you, but maybe I didn't. <laughs> Yes, uh, it's funny because a lot of people bring that up and they say with small towns, with small towns, and I am from a very small town, and yet when I moved on to university, I realized that it's just communities of people in general. It was then became the campus, and even now my I'm in a bigger area, but it's the groups of sports teams or the schools that your kids are involved in. It's just whenever you get groups of people it's interesting the dynamics and what will shift right the way that the village has an impact on us and we impact the village I guess it's almost like the setting becomes a character in your lives yeah and the setting sure certainly is a, a big part of this this story 
I think if you are a reader in downtown Calgary or Toronto and have never lived in a small town, then what's fascinating and exotic (laughs) is, you know, this whole rural world that's so different from the urban world. What was important about using that setting? I loved my small town. And I am one of those people I can imagine myself still living in a small town or living in a city. I adapt quite well to any location. And I think in this case, it worked with a small town just because there is that environment where everybody does know who everybody else is. And they assume they know everything about everybody else, but you don't truly actually know what happens behind closed doors. And I think I wanted to reflect that, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure how to answer that question otherwise. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's a great answer, I think. um, That's a wonderful answer. And, And it kind of leads me to the next question. I'm trying to be so careful not to ask uh, questions that reveal any of the lovely plot twists because it's it's almost like a, a mystery in a way, uh, a love story, a mystery, um, and then all these layers of other meaning. Um, so it, it is what, what you just said, you know, people think they know what's going on, but what in the end is really going on is not necessarily uh, what they had surmised. It's a tricky book to say what genre it actually belongs to because I believe the publishing house said it best is it's multi-layered. Yeah. And there's all these different aspects. But I do hope that for the most part that people are entertained, but maybe that there's those few people out there that can relate to Maya and her situation and know that you're not alone Mm -hmm. because Maya loves her small town and she has this tight bond with it still. But sometimes as we're growing, things are no longer a fit for reasons that are different than anybody else's. Right. And even within her family, she has um, some struggle trying to understand how she fits now that she's gone away and and grown and come back. I think she's almost disconcerted when she came back because she assumed that everything stayed static and the same. And then when she came back and there were changes and everybody else had grown too, there there's some adjusting to be done by all of the characters. Yeah. It's funny how human that is too, hey? Like we remember people, I think, the way we last saw them. Yes. So suddenly it... 10-year-old is no longer 10, and it takes us by surprise when we come back to it. (laughs) I find in a lot of my writing, I come back to that same concept that fascinates me, that do we actually know what happens behind closed doors? I always am curious by the motivations of people. Why did they say that? Why did they do that? Mm -hmm. And the inquirer talks a lot about that. The tabloid within the inquirer talks a lot about that. It questions the decisions people are making, and it may be uncomfortable, but it's making other people question and ask one another as well. Yeah, the 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 tabloid exploits a lot of, like assumes a lot of motives and then exploits that, right? 
Like yes. Joe Blow did this because, and that might not have been even remotely the reason. No, nope. something and- happened. Something may have happened, but not for those reasons. Things taken out of context. Yeah, it it was really fun to read, and yet it also uh, really rattled around in my head afterwards because there's some really important um, topics that you that you touch on. Um, you know the whole the whole element of not quite fitting in, of feeling bullied, of being bullied. Um, acceptance and also um there there's a thread of what i would umbrella under the me too movement where without you know being explicit about it you're talking about some pretty heavy subject matter yet there's quite a few characters in there that are dealing with stereotypes and i had a bit of fun with that because each character that has their own personal struggle and stereotypes may not realize that they're then stereotyping and not realizing the struggles of the next person. Which is, again, such a human nature thing to do. It is, and it goes full circle back to that context that what is motivating someone and do we ever stop and ask that and give anybody the benefit of the doubt? Right, instead of just assuming why and how. So Jacqueline Dawn, The Inquirer is your first book. You you mentioned earlier that the the seed of it uh, was for your your masters. How was it different to uh, look at it as a novel that you were trying to shop around? And what was the process like for you? Now you're on a book tour, your first book, your first book tour. What's all of that been like for you? It's been interesting. I have always dreamed of seeing my own book on the bookshelf, but when you're six years old and you're imagining this versus the reality, (laughs) it's a lot more complicated. When I wrote it for my master's, I was going through a school in Manchester, England, and so it was almost a safe writing zone because I, they had never been to Canada and they were interested and helpful, but it was aside from my real life. No, most people in my life didn't realize that I even wrote creatively. This was kind of the revelation for a lot of people in my life. So then when it was done and graded and the board and the professors there were very supportive and they s- said that this needs to be published, you need to find a home for it, I got nervous and decided to try to edit the whole thing first. (laughs) And so I basically was dragging my feet and delayed. And then when I realized that, no, I'd already edited it enough, I sent it to a couple of places that I'd researched. And New West was my ideal, just because it's in Edmonton close to where the book was set even. And then when I got the phone call from New West... You have the 18 months, and it seems like such a long time, but really it's there's so much going on in that 18 months before it hits shelves. Mm-hmm. And then it hits shelves on October 1st. And it's been interesting because writing is so solitary. And now I'm having to talk about the book and meet people and hear their opinions and the different perspectives. And everybody's been very positive, and it's been a lot of fun. 
but it's interesting to hear what other people have to say about what was created in my head. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a completely different world. The world of marketing versus the world of creating, hey? Yes. <laughs> so you have a book launch um, in Calgary. And what else? What else is on your, your roster for selling your baby to the world? <laughs> I had a book launch in St. Albert on the first actual release day, mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun. Tonight, I will be at Shelf Life Books. And on October 22nd, I'll be at the Almanac on White in Edmonton. And there's a few other things in the works, but no days confirmed and set just yet. My hometown is talking about putting something together. Wonderful. Is there a library in your hometown? There is. Cool. Yes. Anyways, any information about past or future events can be found on my website at .com. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in today. We've loved having you on Writer's Block. Thank you very much for having me. Wendy McGrath's most recent novel, Broke City, is the final book in her Santa Rosa trilogy. Previous novels in the series are Santa Rosa and Northeast. Wendy works in multiple genres. She recently completed a collaborative manuscript of poems inspired by the photography of Danny Miles, drummer for July Talk, and Tongue Helmet. Her poetry, fiction, and nonfiction has been widely published. Wendy lives in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6 territory. Wendy McGrath, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block with the third book in your trilogy, your Santa Rosa trilogy. This book is called Broke City. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking me and, and hosting me here on this beautiful, beautiful chilly day here in Calgary, Dimpney. Yeah, it's it's winter a little bit early today. Uh, give us a give us a little bit of insight into the trilogy and then especially this book. Well, Broke City, as as you mentioned, is the final novel in my Santa Rosa trilogy. Um, the the previous books, the first book was Santa Rosa. Second book, Northeast, and Broke City is the trifecta, completes the trifecta. It's set in a working class neighborhood in Edmonton that no longer exists called Santa Rosa. Although the other day I was on the Yellowhead and saw the sign and nearly it's It's really interesting <laughs> because there are still little hints, little ghost symbols metaphors that still point to that neighborhood. The sign on the Yellowhead, there's a little sign um, for Santa Rosa Park, which is this tiny little park in the area. And anybody in Edmonton who's been around the city for a long time will refer to the Russ Barnes Arena as the Santa Rosa Arena, which it used to be called. Interesting. So there are still those ghost metaphors lingering. And as a matter of fact, when I first began writing the trilogy, Santa Rosa was going to be a ghost story with, you know, the, the true tropes of a ghost story in place. But I wrote about two thirds of it, and it just was not working. So I knew that I still wanted it to be a ghost story of sorts because this family was living in 
essence, a, a ghostly neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Just the the shadow specter of of a part of Edmonton that was amalgamated into another community. So I tried to maintain that that feeling that there was um, an otherworldly quality to this family and this place in in all three books. Um, the the narrator is a girl named Christine, and in each book you see her awareness of her family, of her world, and of her artistic abilities. You you see that grow with each of the books. Mm-hmm. By the end of Broke City, no spoilers here, you encounter an adult Christine briefly and all of the elements and breadcrumbs and some of the symbols that that appear in the first two books are coalesce and come together in this last book. Mm -hmm. So Christine the child is an interesting uh, point of view because as a child she is on the one hand without filter and therefore very honest and on the other hand because she's a child she's also a little bit of an unreliable narrator exactly and and I'm glad you you picked up on that working with a child narrator is a really tricky tightrope to walk because you have to give the reader enough information for them to understand what's going on in a multi-layered context in terms of of family in terms of the the bigger world mm-hmm. but you have to only give the narrator enough awareness to identify these strange things happening the child narr- narrator should not have the understanding or maturity to sort and order these kinds of things. She can only know that something's not quite right, but she doesn't have the language to articulate it and certainly doesn't have, as I said, the the understanding to articulate it. But you need to give the reader that information so they know. Right. And you managed to do that in these really vivid vignettes and, and snapshots almost from her perspective, and also with a recurring theme of of iconic or sort of symbol language that was really interesting. Oh, thank you. Well, I would describe the, the narrative construction, if you will, of these three books as being very image-driven. D- uh, mm-hmm. So um, it, there is a narrative but it's not a traditional linear narrative. It's it's very much based on, as you said, objects, symbols, uh, metaphor. And I think in a very real way, that, that mimics the way that memory works. And certainly time for a child, because time doesn't have the same meaning for, for a child as it does to an adult. It can be very compressed or it can seem very long, you know, very, very much the uh, MC squared. Yeah, that (laughs) intensity too, right? Like in the moment I am 
so in the moment. Very much. And especially for a narrator like Christine, where there's one scene in Broke City where uh, she's thinking about her mom braiding her hair. Her mom does braid her hair, but she's thinking so much about how she loves braids and feeling them. And it's those um, childhood experiences, I think, that are the most intense, those those simple experiences. It's not the extraordinary take the family to Disneyland kind of thing that um, you return to again and again as an adult. It's those very, uh, you know, poignant moments where you feel an emotion very intensely, whether that be fear or or comfort or love. That range of emotions definitely um, is very strongly attached to the moment. Mm -hmm. I love, too, how in doing that, in in taking those distilled perceptions of a child, you you also really show us how she is and will become a creative person inside a world that is very... That that's not the norm, you know. She's she grows up in in hard scrabble kind of working class mm-hmm. world, and for example, the the tree, the little the little tree that is the um, air freshener, that is the tree in the yard, that is the scent of the trees. Like it keeps coming back to her, and through that, you get a sense that she sees the world perhaps. Uh, more more artistically than someone else might. Yes. And to be fair to the parents, you really don't get a glimpse inside their imaginations because I think for so many working-class families, it's about putting food on the table and keeping a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. So there is that contrast and I think that it's important to give the working class uh, a voice. And that's that's one of the things I wanted to do in this trilogy as, as well. There's no doubt that this is a working class neighborhood. There's no doubt that these are working class people with concerns, as I said, that are that relate directly to having enough food to eat. And being exhausted and doing your best, even though it is so hard. Yes, to do your ex- best. exactly. And it's interesting to note how Christine, her, her worldview, as you move through the books, um, her worldview broadens, and her artistic view broadens. And so in a very real sense it is it is a coming of age novel certainly but uh, novels certainly um but I would say it's it's also uh, a Bildungsroman where you see the the artist making that commitment and realizing that they need to make that a that commitment, mm-hmm. um, and and it's again talking about that that tightrope image. Is it that 
Christine, Christine loves her parents. She doesn't understand what's what's going on, but she sees that her life and her world will ultimately carry on outside the neighborhood of Santa Rosa. Mm -hmm. So she, without having any awareness of class necessarily, um, I do think in a very real way, she will use those working class markers as springboards for her own work. And and you you made an interesting point where she identifies those things around her. I mean, she elevates the the, the pine air freshener that her dad puts on the rear view mirror to, you know, uh, almost a, a talisman. Mm -hmm. um, in one of the previous novels, she mimics or she tries to recreate her feelings or ideas or make connections with symbols and, and images in her world by making these little discs out of putty that her that her dad has. Um, and burying them under the, the right. tree. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is also significant. Uh, there, there is um, an element of magic realism, I would say, in each one of these novels, and... I'm I'm glad when the reader goes along with with those flights, with Christine's journeys, her artistic journeys, and her journeys in her imagination. Do you think that's easier for the reader to um, be allow themselves to be taken along because it is a child narrator? That's an interesting question. I think that would depend. So much depends on the reader and the location of the reader and i mean that both in a physical sense if if you you know if you're giving yourself as a reader a lot of of time to and and space to concentrate on a book or you know if that's not available to you um and and if you yourself at that particular moment when you encounter these books if you allow yourself to. And I think most readers um, allow themselves to be taken along, uh, you know, a journey of the imagination. It's kind um, of the contractual like, agreement of opening well, a book. Well, yeah, it, sure. To a degree. I think it's just a little more, it might be a little more challenging with a child narrator because... I think if if you are uh, a reader in tune with narrative voice, as of course you know readers are, you uh, in my mind anyway. When I was writing these, I was I was very cognizant of the reader judging the child narrator's voice. Voice. You were worried that they would say that's not in character. It's not in character, or it's too knowing. Right. You know, this kid's too much of of. Uh, uh, a smart ass, you know. So you have to be careful because the the child narrator can't be too precocious. But I think, given that she's she's not, I mean, she's funny in in times, and she's very observant, and she picks up on a lot of things. But she's not a smart ass. No, she. But she has a very fierce sense of identity. Like she's kind of quirky, yeah, and doesn't really. It doesn't seem to bother her that she's kind of quirky. 
No, it no, absolutely she just doesn't. Is her weird little self, and... As, especially by the time we get to Broke City, Christine is very much her own person and very much uh, knows what she wants to do and what she will become. And as a child, I mean, this isn't a present day story. It's it's the sixties. The sixties. So. You can also tell that the way life was then, she had a lot of time alone with her imagination. Oh, yes. In which she could develop those kind of fierce senses of, well, it's going to be, this is what I think, it's going to be this way. Yeah, exactly. And um, Broke City is set in 1967. The previous books are obviously in the 60s, but Broke City is definitely in, in 1967. And I think that's an interesting year because, well, the 60s were interesting, I find, because they seem like such a hopeful decade. But 67 had its own horrors. There was the Apollo 1 spacecraft that, that exploded and killed three astronauts, and it was a horrific thing. There were the Detroit riots, and then there was the constant backdrop of the Vietnam War that that right. was always playing, at least in you know Christine's mind in in the backdrop. And then there was also, which is uh, this incident is alluded to in Broke City. There was a mass murder in a very small town in, well, near a small town in Saskatchewan where um, nine people of the same family were were killed. And this also comes into play in Broke City. So in a very real sense, um, yes, Christine is fiercely independent and knows her mind, but she's also extremely sensitive. And as I think all kids are. And they're always watching. They're always watching and they don't have the language or don't know how to communicate their fear. Mm -hmm. So they'll just quietly um, be terrified before they go to sleep at night with all of these these worries. Well, and, and it's really clear too uh, that there are, are there, yes, there's the, overhearing about this murder and what does it mean and can it happen but there's also um i think there's a line that really kept going around in my head um the kind of work that her that defined her dad defined her family you know this kind of sense that they're trying so hard and they're working so hard. She can see everyone around her always trying again. And she also really notices the 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 fear, the unhappiness, the anger, the exhaustion, but she doesn't know how to make sense of it because she's a kid. Exactly. And I and I think a lot of kids are in that position. You you don't have the knowledge to make sense of what your parents are going through. And really, before a certain before you get to a certain age, you don't even really think of your parents as individuals. They're just kind of these people that are there. You love them, but you don't 
you don't necessarily think of them as having these these distinct personalities or even having lives before they were your parents. You're just all one octopus. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So when when you start to realize that um your parents are are people with re- with their own fears and their own struggles, it is a loss of innocence. Mm-hmm. And I think setting this book in 67 where I think that year also is is a, a loss of innocence for all those reasons I I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so many things were happening in the world, and the and the '60s were were going to be such a, a decade of promise. And JFK was assassinated, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, on and on and on and on. So all of this hopefulness um, vanished, and so this idea of of vanishing, disappearing, ghostly, um, ghostly disappearances is kind of a, a thread that runs through all three books. And the way that she's trying to make sense of these kind of diaphanous ideas that float around her because she's a, a child and she sees her parents struggling and she doesn't know what it is. It's almost like... Those are the ghosts, too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's, there's one scene in Broke City where they, uh, Christine's family gets a box of spam delivered to the house. Mm-hmm. And that actually, I'm told, really did happen at some, some juncture in, in the 60s. And uh, out of work families whose whose breadwinner didn't you know didn't have a job and bread no pun intended breadwinner, um, the city delivered a a box of spam to those families. I don't know if that would happen now, but I I just found that so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's handled in an interesting way too because it. She picks up on the fact that it's someone trying to be nice, but that it's not necessarily that nice. Well, then I hope that... And that it makes her parents have to be servile in their own house. She notices that. Yes. And and, and I'm really glad you picked up on that because that, that was a tricky scene to write because... You want to get across the idea that, of course, Christine's family or her parents are very proud, but um, this food is going to be so essential to help them get through this winter week or to whenever her father can next get a paycheck. Mm -hmm. So um, that is very interesting that that you you mentioned that kind of servile aspect because again it's about giving the reader just enough information for them to draw their own conclusions mm-hmm. um without telling them 
everything that's going on in the parent's mind because with the child narrator you the reader's not allowed that luxury and i and as a writer i didn't didn't allow myself that luxury we see it only through christine's lens. lens yeah so in some in some respects i think it's having a child narrator is very refreshing mm-hmm. because it forces you to live and and as a writer be present in a in a child's mind and gazing at the world only through a child's gaze and it forces a certain discipline on you because i edited and threw away much more <laughs> than than what ultimately ended up in in the books so it's it was a really good exercise in just saying enough just right. saying what needed to be said and speaking volumes with that minimalism you hope <laughs> yeah no <laughs> I, hope. I i think it really worked i i did notice um i i knew you i've known you for years and i knew you first as a poet and so perhaps this is uh um my own lens but i could really see how those poetic sensibilities came out in the language that you that you wrote with. Well, thank you. I and and I hope and the that's spareness the case. of it, you know, the the that purposeful kind of distillation of what can I just say that's enough that's be, the words are beautiful enough and poof this whole story is behind it. Well, I w- I I truly hope that that's what readers will get from it. And uh I'm I'm so glad that that you picked up on that. I think that as a poet, um, you know, I've been thinking about how that affects my construction of narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be a really interesting challenge for me to write a traditional codified linear narrative because I seem to gravitate towards this, this imagistic um, structure, which is more, um, uh, yeah, more poetic, more like a, a long poem mm-hmm. or a poetic narrative. Yeah. My, my first novel, Recurring Fictions, I would describe as poetic narrative. Um, and, and I suppose I would describe the Santa Rosa trilogy as poetic narrative as well. It's no small thing to be able to do that and still have it be where people want to turn the pages even if they're not, you know, first and foremost lovers of poetry. Because poetry does still tend to scare people, doesn't it? <laughs> so you can, you can trick people into liking it, right? Exactly. <laughs> It's a good story. You want to learn more. <laughs> so pulling pulling the lens out a little bit, uh, what was important about Santa Rosa and and writing about working class? Ken Lit is not exactly rife with stories that are that are you know blue collar working class stories. It definitely isn't. And so full disclosure, um, my family did live in the neighborhood of Santa Rosa when I was little for a period of time. 
And it struck me that we, when we lived there, it very much was the the, the packing plants were, were there. You could smell them. There was um, the Santa Rosa Grocery. It, it was a neighborhood. And everybody was working class. And everybody... Often people were there because of the work exactly. being there, right? Exactly. Living, they they worked at one of the plants, and it was close to work, and so that's where that particular group congregated. Mm-hmm. And so it struck me, and this goes back to my idea of the the ghost story. So Santa Rosa was this neighborhood. In 1981, Edmonton City Council voted to have it absorbed by the nearby community of Montrose. And so I thought about Santa Rosa being a ghost community, and I thought of all those families, my family included, that would have lived there at that time. And in a sense, they were ghosts, and certainly ghosts of the neighborhood. So... That interested me. And the idea of something like a neighborhood simply disappearing, I I thought of it obviously in terms of that particular neighborhood in Edmonton, but I also thought of it in terms of, of a, a broader view of Canada. How many na- neighborhoods in how many major cities, or Toronto, for example, were working class and then became gentrified? Mm-hmm. So... What's left? Well, and even deeper than that, how many um, villages or constructs are just paved over? Yeah, whole whole exactly. ways of life completely yeah. paved over. Yeah, exactly. That we don't think about anymore, and yet their ghosts are there. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was important to me in in that sense, but I wanted to. Uh, give voice to this working class family, and and I would like to think give by, you know, in in turn give voice to other working class families, um, and I said it in that neighborhood because in my mind when I was writing these books, I went back to that house we lived in, and inhabited that space, and um remembered as much as I could and made up as much as I could as well, but but using that as my locus, mm-hmm. using that as my home base, right. both, both in a real sense and in an uh, imaginative sense. Um, so I, it was really important that these voices be heard. And this particular segment of society be heard because I don't think that there is much discussion in Canada about class. And yet it's not like it doesn't exist. That's right. I mean, you, you for example, if you uh, look at the UK, for instance, accents are a marker of class. Um clothing, food, mm-hmm. all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not 
a lot of discussion about those markers as they might exist in, in Canada. Um, but that said, I tried very much to write in, when I, when I included dialogue in these three books, I tried very hard to write in the vernacular. Mm -hmm. I tried very hard to include what I thought would be um, those markers. And I don't mean that in a negative sense at all. But food is a very important social marker and class marker in these books. Mm -hmm. The fact that the family gets the box of spam. Um, they don't eat a lot of, of expensive things. It's very simple. And when Christine and her family are getting ready to go to her father's parents for, for Christmas, the Chris, on Christmas morning, Christine's mom says, you know, we're going to have this particular cereal because it's a wonderful Christmas tradition. Mm -hmm. And Christine just gets all happy. But then when her mom opens the cupboard, she sees that... In fact, that is the only cereal. So going back to the little discussion that we had about the parents working hard and, and trying to make ends meet, I mean, you look at little things in the book and, and yes, the, the parents are absolutely frazzled and struggling and, you know, trying to do the best in, in their circumstances but moments like that you have to think if your mom is telling you that that there has to be you know I'm I'm going to make this happy for you right I'm going to say just because we have this only cereal I in the house I'm going to make it seem like it's special for you yeah and so, I'm noticing you doing that yeah yeah, yeah. so again it, it's about giving enough information giving giving voice to um christine or her parents um enough so that the reader can pick up on that and right. they and there are ghostly elements about it because there are there are specific things mentioned in the in the books that of course no longer exist the neighborhood the TV, on and on and on and on, uh, rotary dial phones. Yeah. There are so many things that are ghosts from the past. Well, on that note, thank you for coming into Writer's Block today and having that discussion with us and for writing about the working class with such affection and respect. Thank you so much, Dimphony. Come to the Prow in the new Central Library in East Village on Saturday, November 23rd at 2 p.m. for Thistledown's author event featuring Kat Cameron with her short story collection, The Eater of Dreams, Sophie Stocking with the dark but funny and irreverent novel, Corridor 9, and Joanne McKaig, author and beloved owner of Shelf Life Books and Freehand Press, with her latest book, An Honest Woman, in which literary ambition collides with erotic. Thank you for listening to Writer's Block. The opening and closing theme for our show is Cloud Chaser by local band 36. 
You can hear more music from them at whatis36.com.